The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. This show is going to be a blast. Let me just tell you right now, if you you had many choices in podcasts, and we thank you for choosing this one because you're going to have a very, very good time. For many reasons, not the least of which is our co-host this week, Elisa Rockdock, joining us. Hey, Elisa. I'm oh. here. I'm here. And I just woke <laughs> up from a nap. Hi. Hi. Uh, good to be <laughs> chatting with you. I have something very exciting that I want to talk to you about before we talk about everything else. Okay. Oh. I want to know how MAGFest is, how MAGFest was. You just came back from that. We're going to talk all about that. We're going to talk about our guest in the second segment, Jennifer Freed, CEO of Trivana Tracks, is going to be joining us, talking to us all about sync and clearance and license management. Super important stuff for indie artists. We got our AI overlords tip of the week. We got lots of great stories. But before we get to any of that, Elisa, Whoa. I need to like try something with you on the air that uh, the moment I saw this, I said, we're going to do this on the show for the very first time. Have you seen the clip going around, Elisa, of Tom Hanks on the Stephen Colbert show this week? I have not. Okay. So Stephen Colbert had Tom Hanks on the show. And on the show, Tom, uh, Tom Hanks was talking about his experience at New Year's where he basically invented a drink. He talked about how he had a, he had a glass of Diet Coke in his hand, you know, mm -hmm. one of my favorite beverages around. And as it was getting closer to midnight, people were passing out the champagne. And rather than putting his Diet Coke down and getting into his champagne, he thought, why not blend these two terrific beverages together? And he did. And apparently, it, according to him, it was like the best thing he's ever drank. Mm -hmm. And it was so good that he actually went on the Stephen Colbert show had Stephen Colbert drink this drink, and they both drank it and said it was incredible. I am skeptical, but I also enjoy Diet Coke, and I certainly enjoy champagne. And so I figured, since it's still pretty close to the new year, we would take a shot at this and figure out in real time what this tastes like. I have a bottle of champagne here that I didn't consume from New Year's. I have Diet Coke here. We're going to try the drink that I'm going to call. I call it the Tom Hanks, like the Tom Collins, right? Wow. I uh, thought it was just going to be a, a Diet Coke, Spagliato with champagne in it. <laughs> a little Prosecco. Stunning. Um, now, Tom Hanks calls the drink, uh, you know, in rather delightful portmanteau, he calls it a Diet Coke cane. Oh, well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> straight but, to the origins of the original product, I guess, you know? Yeah, but I kind of like the idea of calling it the Tom Hanks, because, I, you know, if it's that good, it should be named after him. But we're going to find out right now, okay? I okay, got, I'm, I'm, I'm pouring the beverage here in real time. Okay, I, I, I have to note, though, um, on behalf of my people and, 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 and a lot of sort of Latin American countries as well as the Caribbean, we do have a beverage called cola champagne. <laughs> is this a thing? Is champagne. Um, it is. It is not associated with champagne at all. I did have to look it up, but um, it's it's more of like a like a cream soda flavor um, rather than actual champagne. But I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, that first of all, that sounds delicious. <laughs> and second of all, I'm so glad that it's the, the mixture is different and we are not just blatantly appropriating culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't he he, he didn't Columbus it. We're good. <laughs> you got me real nervous there for a second. <laughs> what a terrible thing for me of a, to have about to found out on Sirius XM radio. No, we're good. No, 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 we're clear. No, no one's Tom. getting canceled this, tonight. This is Tom, not Chet. This is different. <laughs> OK, so the Diet Coke has been poured. And according to Mr. Hanks. You don't go nuts with the champagne, right? Just a just a spritz, if you will. 
All right. So we're, we're you know, we got the, our. For, for the podcast listeners, I must mention that this is a twisty, tiny bottle of champagne. It is quite quaint. It, it is a little bottle. I'm not going to burn through like a whole bottle of champagne just for this bit. But I had like a little <laughs> tiny one in the fridge. So we would try that oh, out. All right. It's a little one. I have not stirred this. So it might be like champagne heavy on the first sip. I don't have like a stirring straw or anything, but here we go. We're going to try this out. Feel free to play along at home. No, no, no ice. No no chaser. Just Diet Coke and champagne. Here we go. Okay. You took two good glugs of that. Not going to lie. That's amazing. What? Yeah. I... I had every expectation that this would be garbage and damn it. If it's not terrific, like the, like you, first of all, you get like double the bubbly, right? Cause you're getting the okay. two different kinds of carbonation, like dancing together, which is fun. You get like, you know, you still like get a, you know, a little bit of champagne, a little bit of kick to your cola and the cola's still rocking. And I'm going to like, I, I thought, I thought Tom Hanks was just effing with us. This is a pretty terrific beverage. Okay. This might find its way into my New Year's arsenal. Okay. But I will put the rest of it down so that uh, I'll actually be able to finish this particular radio program. Ah, it'll be fun. (laughs) It's going to get progressively just slightly tilted and off the rails and real bubbly like. What a good drink. You know what? I should have known that Tom Hanks wouldn't steer us wrong. Yeah. America's grandfather absolutely would never. If Tom Hanks says it's a good drink, I should have taken him at his word. That was my fault. Anyway, now that now, now that we're past that silliness, okay. you last week you told us that you were heading to Magfest Music and Gaming uh, Conference. We want to know how it went. Uh, how was your experience? Oh, it was absolutely fantastic. It was a whirlwind, um, but thankfully. Um, for some reason, I have done enough cool stuff in my life that I get to take advantage of, of being a guest rather than a regular attendee at that place, which is awesome because otherwise I don't know if I would have been able to survive with the schedule that I had. But it was jam-packed. I had a panel. We did a Voice-A-Palooza panel where it was a bunch of voice actors up to and including. And, 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 and I have to tell you that I am sitting in between like Valkyrie from Apex with Erica Ishii on one side and like Ellen McLean as GLaDOS and like the sniper from Team Fortress 2, you know, like I'm sitting at the same table as these people and we're taking index cards from the audience of like different lines that we have to say in character and just completely off the rails. Um, (laughs) Composers roundtable voice acting workshop. But like the best thing about MAGFest is that we take over this giant resort and convention center for the weekend and people like decorate their balconies like it's almost like a cruise ship it's like it's as if you're going like on a cruise by land but it's fully music and gaming every other corner you will see someone with a violin or a guitar or you know you know let's be real an ocarina for most (laughs) times um someone playing or someone will find a grand piano and start sitting on it and then people will join them and they'll start jamming there's music everywhere and it is an absolute treat to go and especially staying in the host hotel where i could pop up and take my shoes off for a couple of hours in between sessions because this thing is literally 24 hours baby it's so fun and and it's the most rewarding convention that that i go to every year and this year was absolutely no different a common theme i hear from creative professionals when they go to conferences like magfest is this idea that these conferences are kind of restorative. You know, you spend so much time in the grind, especially for creative professionals that spend a lot of time just sort of working from home, particularly voiceover work, which can oh, be yeah. a pretty lonely, isolating experience, just you in that booth, that conferences like this get you back in touch with why you do this in the first place. You get to be back around creative people. You're all hanging out, you know, much how like, all of us who are in the creative business were theater kids. And so our best times in high school were hanging around other theater kids and getting into that environment. Like that's kind of what it sounds like Magfest is and conferences like this are. It's kind of like theater camp. You're getting all, all getting together and just being creative and, and having fun. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. And like, I literally got to sit next to the composer for Journey um, as um, and and talk about like our process as musicians. Um, it's it's kind of different in that sense from other conventions where a lot of places there will be such a like dev heavy and corporate heavy presence, and you're getting like monsters slinged at your head, you know, like every other like booth or something. And there's this sometimes there there feels like this like weird hierarchy but at mag it feels like everybody is a lot closer um you get a little bit more interaction and get to see people as peers that maybe you would have like felt intimidated by and you know let's be real still do um but also it's 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 trading all of the information together and being creative around other people but also the internet super sucks and oftentimes you don't hear about like the positive impact that your work can have on people um until sometimes you meet them in person and it's a nice reminder that like oh no like people have heard of the things that i've done and have interacted with it and see it positively and like i am making some sort of an impact um and thank goodness it's a positive one you know the data has shown so far um so it's 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 a nice little sort of boost and like a reminder especially like right at the beginning of the year um to be like no 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 people people still <laughs> and especially after you know these last couple of years of like not traveling and everything so many people are kind of coming back to mag for the first time and so it's that extra little jolt of oh yes there are a whole bunch of people just like me out there. I'm not just creating in a vacuum. There are people that out there that that get it and that are into it. Um, and and it makes me want to create for them more now that I'm back. Yeah. What you're talking about reminds me a lot of what I hear professionals in the music industry say when they go to a conference like the DIY Musician Conference, for example. You know, that same kind of vibe. South by Southwest has a little bit of those elements, mm -hmm. too, although that one is a little more industry heavy. Yeah. But that's great. I'm fully supportive of any conference that just is surrounded, is festooned with people that are just going to tell you how great you are. That is, uh, is right there on the word on the day calendar. I had to go with it. And I'm really thrilled for you. All right. Let us now move on to what is uh, begrudgingly for me and continuing to become like the most popular segment on this program lately, <laughs> which is when I ask chat GPT, our AI overlord now for oh. a tip of the week to advise indie artists. Cause I did it one week as a joke. And now <laughs> the artists are like more robot chat GPT tips, please. So now not only do we now have this as a recurring segment, but I've been told by our producer, Lauren, that it has imaging now. So the AI overlords have actually taken over Break the Business's music department and and, a, and and visual effects department and given us image imaging. So, Lauren, if you could, can you play us our intro for the AI overlord tip of the week? Oh, now that's outstanding. <laughs> I like that. Uh, wow. Producer Lauren, can you tell us who do we do we need to credit or thank somebody for that? That that sounds I mean, other Lord. than the AI overlords, of course, that would be Luis Gonzalez. Not that that's not one of the most common names in South Florida, but uh, wonderful, wonderful indie artists, I guess, mostly cover music, but wonderful, helpful. And we appreciate him. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, much appreciated. All right. So without further ado, we can uh, get into yeah. our, so this, so, so just to remind people for the, and for the uninitiated, all we do here is I go into chat GPT and I say, I host a entertainment industry podcast for indie creators. I need a tip of the week. That's all the prompting I give chat GPT. And without fail every week, it gives us an absolute banger of a tip of the week. So here's our AI overlord tip of the week this week. Okay. Create recurring segments of content that take place over multiple days. By providing regular and consistent content, you can give your audience something to look forward to and help build a sense of community around your work. Recurring segments can also make it easier for you to plan and produce your content in advance, which can save time and reduce stress. 
By providing regular and consistent content, you can give your audience something to look forward to and help build a sense of community around your work. Recurring segments can also make it... E oh, I think our AI overlords doubled the text there. <laughs> I just ah. realized. Um, yes, but either way, that's so funny. Um, yeah, so either way, that is that is great advice. And uh, certainly our AI overlord did not invent this idea of recurring content segments. A lot of artists have had a lot of success with it, but I love this idea because uh, I think one of the toughest things to do for an artist is to, you know, not only have ideas for content, but to like be able to create a serialized type thing that keeps people coming back. And so I think this is great advice. Um, what do you think? Uh, recurring content. So my, my question is, is I'm wondering if the AI overlord did this as a way for you to continue the reoccurring segment AI Overlord tip of the week. Know what I mean? I mean, it is demonstrating mm -hmm. an example of recurring segments of content by repeating something. I would mm -hmm. not put it past the Overlord. And who are we to question the AI Overlord? Not 10 minutes after getting this AI Overlord tip of the week, which was so overwhelming that like my brain stopped functioning and I just had to go on to TikTok for a while. By the way, you can follow me now on TikTok at Rye the Law Guy. Yes, you can. I was scrolling through an app and happened upon an indie creator who gave us, who gave me a terrific example of a recurring content segment that she's doing. Um, the the creator's name is Sophia Campolmore on TikTok, and uh, I'll let her explain what she's doing. This is a terrific recurring segment. January 9th, 2015, exactly eight years ago today, the New York Times published a column called To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. It was the story of a woman who had been on a date with an acquaintance when she remembered this 1997 psychology study where two strangers were brought into a lab, given a series of 36 personal questions to ask each other, and then six months later ended up falling in love and getting married. So she tried this on her date, she also fell in love, and these 36 questions became super popular at the time of the article. I realized that tomorrow, January 10th, is exactly 36 days before Valentine's Day. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna be writing a song every day from now until Valentine's Day, answering each one of the questions. By the end, I'll have fallen in love or I'll have 36 songs. Both would be great. Please feel free to join in and we'll see what happens. On January 9th- So how cute is that? Exactly that, eight years wonderful. ago today, the New York Times- um, That's that's wonderful. with anyone do this. One, not so much from, from a like creative content perspective, but just as a songwriter who literally in the last couple of weeks has just Googled songwriting prompts. <laughs> you know, I have an AI overlord who can help you with that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that that makes perfect sense to me not only is it a recurring thing that can keep her audience engaged and i can tell you like i i i put like 300 comments in that video just so the algorithm would guarantee <laughs> like show me every one of her 36 songs that she's going to be writing but right, it's a great way to help prompt your own songwriting ideas. She's going to be able to come up with ideas that she never would have come up with because she has these 36 separate pieces of inspiration. I don't know if you've ever seen this New York Times article before, Elisa. It is delightful. No, I am, I am, I am not subscribed. I constantly get a prompt that all of my free monthly articles have run out. Even when you even when you check it on like your 14 different web browsers or you open it up on your phone and you hit reader view as fast as you can. Who has time for the New York Times? Uh, it's it's a really cool thing that she's doing. And, you know, and obviously writing 36 songs in 36 days is ambitious. And I hope she can finish it. But she seems like she will because she seems like a pretty diligent creator. But you can do different versions of this um, in different ways. I think I've seen artists that will do like a song a week campaign where they write a new song every week. Obviously, Jonathan Mann, the writer of the Break the Business Show theme, is the king of this. He has written a single, a new song every day for about 9,000 consecutive days now. He's the Guinness World Record holder. Um, but either way, these kind of content plans not only can help inspire content ideas for you, as, as they have for Sophia, but they get your audience coming back because they want to because maybe they look ahead to what question 17 was in the New York Times article. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see what Sophia does with this one. That's adorable. <laughs> yeah, I like this. I like this idea. And also 
I'm a fan of things that it's not just following trends for the sake of the algorithm. It's something where you actually get to like take home an extra creative piece because you as a songwriter, you might be going through this process anyway of, you know, as 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 Evan would say, writing through the BS um, in, in order to you know, get, get some gold out, but this is a way to get some gold out and kind of have your audiences a little bit of an accountability buddy oh, yeah. in a way to kind of keep you accountable and keep poking you to be like, Hey, Hey, I'm waiting for this thing. So that like, you know, maybe even on days where you don't have the spoons, you now have like an audience kind of poking you um, to kind of hold you accountable. So I like that idea too. And I think a lot of creators who might've considered an idea, something like similar to this might say to themselves, this is taking me away from the big work I need to do. I have an album to write. I have an EP to write. I can't spend 36 days writing, you know, silly 30 second songs about a New York Times article. But something to keep in mind or, or a couple things I would say. One is what, you know, Maya Angelou says about creativity. The more you, creativity is a muscle, the more you use it, the stronger it becomes. I'm convinced that Sophia Campoamore is going to come out of this experience an infinitely better and more prolific songwriter because she spent, you know, 36 days just flexing those yep. creativity muscles. And and so there's that. Secondly, I'm also pretty positive that by the time this is over, is she going to have 36 completely done songs? No. But I bet she's going to have one or two nuggets that she's going to be able to make into full-length mm -hmm. songs that she wouldn't have had before. Yep, absolutely. So, like, whenever you're thinking of content... Um, don't necessarily try to chase a thing that's popular, but like as much as possible, try to chase things that will leave you with something you can use by the end of it. Um, and in that way, you're also kind of keeping it like authentic to kind of your own songwriting experience and like your own creator experience rather than trying to like shoehorn something else in. Yeah, I, I, I've heard that from you a couple times now. It sounds like you're pretty pleased with the fact that she's sort of developing something new on TikTok as opposed to just getting in on an existing trend, which I know is like, oh, the temptation for that is very strong. Oh, if I use this sound that I know is very popular, it's gonna, I'm going to get hundreds of, of likes um, rather than trying to build something new. But it sounds like you're getting a lot of, she, you're getting a lot of, she's getting a lot of your respect by, yes. by doing something completely different and carving out a space for herself. Yeah. Now I'm not saying to not chase trends, but to chase trends in a way that actually feel like authentic to your experience. Like, you know, I, I've seen a couple of your TikToks do that um, at Rye the Law Guy uh, on TikTok. Um, using, Thank you. Using, using which, which, which I also love is you used a, a McElroy sound on, on, on one of your TikToks. And those are like yes. my favorite podcasters in the world. Um, but keeping, keeping, any sort of trend thing relevant, but then also supplementing it with stuff like this um, is also a really easy way for you to focus on this thing you're creating and not focus on chasing numbers all the time because you're going to feel like you're hitting your head against a brick wall if that's all you do. Mm. Yeah. Great, great, great stuff. <laughs> Thanks again to our a AI overlord for whom we pledge uh, our loyalty uh, for another fantastic tip of the week. Um, I'm, I have some entertainment law news, and I'm a little shocked that this entertainment law news didn't come from my own research, but from Elisa <laughs> getting this entertainment fairy. law news to me before I could even find it, uh, which is which is wild to me. But this is this is a bonker story, right? So let me tell everybody what happened for for the uninitiated. The a uh, few days ago, Twitter reportedly locked out. Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene from her Twitter account after she posted a video that contained an unauthorized use of the 1999 Dr. Dre song, Still D-R-E. Am I, I'm, I'm so uncool by even asking this. Am I pronouncing that song right? Like, am I supposed to be spelling the letters out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yes, I'm cool. Still, still D-R-E. All right. That's great. Very cool. Yep. Just just yep. making sure one <laughs> don't want to like I, 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 I almost culturally appropriated earlier. I don't want to mess up a hip hop song like that's just I'm on no, the bullet train to cancellation at this rate. When, 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 when it comes to messing up a hip hop song the the bar <laughs> clearly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I can't possibly mess up a hip hop song any worse than Marjorie Taylor Greene did. Um, but what's amusing about this is not the fact that she, you know, misappropriated this particular song. You know, we don't love copyright infringement around here. But what made this amazing was the response of Dr. Dre's attorneys, which I think is what made this viral, right? Once this video came out, Dr. Dre's attorneys sent a cease and desist letter to Representative uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene that one of the writers of which is uh, around known around entertainment law circles as the king, as the Rembrandt, as the Beethoven of snarky cease and desist letters. Uh, I encourage people uh, when they're done with this to check out Peter Paterno writing a cease and desist letter to Bill Murray. Oh, um, and and everything and, and, and what happened there? Like, because uh, but anyway, Peter Paterno, who is like the, uh, the entertainment lawyer, who is the king of these kind of letters, is one of the writers on this uh, cease and desist. And if uh, Lauren, if you have it up, I want to read some snippets of it because it is delicious and dripping with snark. Normally, cease and desist letters, super boring, right? They just restate the law. And, you know, you, you throw a govern yourself accordingly in there. Uh, please be advised. <laughs> Boring. But Peter Paterno and uh, Howard E. King, the, uh, the lead author on this masterpiece of a cease and desist letter, knew that his audience was not really Marjorie Taylor Greene, who he was pretty sure was never going to read this letter. The audience is us. And wanting to entertain the world and educate us about copyright law. So I got some uh, clips here. Actually, uh, Elisa, as voiceover artist extraordinaire, oh. do you want to interpret this masterpiece sure for us? Sure thing. We, we have page two up, but do we have page one? Because I think there's a line on page one. There most certainly um, is. Yes. That, that <laughs> was the sort of first little like pop of the balloon there. Chef's kiss. Um, it, it is... It, um, Ryan, while 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 we get that page one up, potentially, if if not, that's cool. Um, as <laughs> as as somebody who works in in sort of this field, is this is this something that you dream about? <laughs> it really is. I would I would I would love 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 to be able to write a letter like this and have it be you know have it go all over Twitter and just be like heroically carried like off the field, like the end of Rudy for this amazing letter. But in reality, like in my line of work, we tend not to like to write letters like this if we can avoid it because the because yeah. because a letter like this usually will be a prelude to litigation. A lot of times I don't recommend clients go into litigation. So when I write a letter like this, I try to be more chill about it. It's more of like a, <laughs> hey, man, um, hey. we love that you're a fan of our of my client. Uh, Love this is, enthusiasm. you know, you know, love the enthusiasm. Exactly. Just, you know, I know we, we hate to be a buzzkill about this, oh, but you can't post their sure. song. But ah. if you're willing to take it down, we'd really appreciate it. We'll send you a signed poster like that's. <laughs> wow. And then if they say like, no, screw you, man, then we got to bring no, out the no, big no, guns. Okay. But 99% of the time they love the free poster and they love that, like, you know, everything's working out. But anyway, okay, it looks like we got page okay. one up here. Cool. Uh, if you if you would, Dr. Melendez. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, from 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 the tippy top or from paragraph three? Uh, paragraph three, I think. Oh, okay, right. yeah, that's what I figured. One might expect that, as a member of Congress, you would have a passing familiarity with the laws of our country. It's possible, though, that laws governing intellectual property are a little too arcane and insufficiently populist for you to really have spent much time on. We're writing because we think an actual lawmaker should be making laws, not breaking laws, especially those embodied in the Constitution by, you know, the founding fathers. With <laughs> editorializing mine, but highly implied. <laughs> the this paragraph States is beautiful right yeah. here. Brace yourself, people. <clears throat> The United States Copyright Act says a lot of things, but one of the things it says is that you can't use someone else's song for your political campaign promotions unless you get permission from the owner of the copyright in the song, a step you failed to take. Okay. It goes on from there, but again, like this is <sighs> this is delicious and God. What I love about this story is not just the fact that it, you know, it articulates an important point about copyright law, which is don't use other artists songs in their videos unless you have the permission. 
But it is just the latest in a proud and illustrious history of artists dumping on politicians for using their music without permission, right? This goes back a long time. Bruce Springsteen has, you know, Mm. told Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, and Pat Buchanan not to use uh, his music. Donald Trump has had countless musicians, including Springsteen, R.E.M., Elton John, Aerosmith, and Adele, Uh, getting uh, demands from them not to use their music. Perhaps my favorite all-time example of this is the Dropkick Murphys. So Scott Walker, the Republican from Wisconsin who was running for president, was using the song uh, I'm Shipping Up to Boston by Dropkick Murphys. And the Dropkick Murphys tweeted at Scott Walker, quote, please stop using our music in any way. We literally hate you. (laughs) Which is amazing. Um, and and then I, I think, but, but and you want to make a distinction here, right? Because there is a legal argument that politicians do have, may have some right to use an artist's music at a campaign event, right? If it's playing at a venue and the ah. venue has a public performance license, right. in theory, it's probably okay. Although there's some other legal questions there that we don't want to get into. But where you're definitely going to be in trouble is if you're just posting a video, right? Because that requires a synchronization license. You need the publisher's permission. And there have been other politicians who've gotten into trouble with this. I remember back in 2016, in perhaps like an even more egregious example than the example I brought up with Marjorie Taylor Greene. In 2016, Mike Huckabee posted a campaign video about the Iowa caucuses using Adele's Hello, the song Hello by Adele. But instead of using the actual Adele recording, he got a new artist to record it and like changed all the lyrics to make it about the Iowa caucuses. Hmm. Because I love you and this audience, we will not be playing that song on this program. But uh, it is it is terrible. And I hate to crap on like artist work, but we make an exception here because this one's bad. And and it absolutely infringed on a copyright. And I know I, I know what you're thinking, at least. Fatal parody. I, I know Fatal you're thinking parody. Um, this is not a parody because they did not change the lyrics of the Adele song to lampoon the Adele song. He changed the lyrics of the song to make to talk about the Iowa caucuses and to hate on like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Uh-huh. which is what we lawyers would call satire, which is uh, not generally protected as fair use to the same extent. But uh, an important lesson about copyright law and respecting people's rights that uh, got told in a hilarious way, thanks to our, our friends, uh, Peter Paterno et, et al. <laughs> uh, and yes, I would love very much someday to be able to write a cease and desist letter just like that. <laughs> I, I, I'd love to have him on the show. <laughs> oh my, I, 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 I gotta work on that. Uh, he might he he's a pretty nifty like he's hilarious and is like super chill i bet he'd come on we'll, we'll talk to him about that anyway yeah speaking of people that we do have on that are also delightful uh and i'm excited to talk with coming up right now after the break we're going to be chatting with jennifer freed from trevana tracks looking forward to that don't go anywhere back in two minutes here on break the business ryan Corella here I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm, RKPA, does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. 
L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Let me just say... Um, the problem with the, the Tom Hanks beverage, as I'm now coming to discover, is not the taste, which again, uh, you know, a, a beyond reproach, absolutely delightful taste. <laughs> the problem is you are combining two carbonated beverages yeah. together, mm-hmm. and it is doing a number on my stomach as we speak, particularly when you talk for a half hour and you're inhaling oh, and exhaling yeah. oxygen. It is a, it's a real mess right now. Oh, you're going to be fun. Yeah. Um, thank you all for checking out Break the Business. You can check us out on all major podcast platforms, uh, Facebook Live, Twitter Live, Twitch, LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn now. Can you believe what? it? As well as Sirius XM 145. Much love to our friends at Slam Radio for giving us a satellite radio home. I'm Ryan Carella, joined by Elisa Rockdock, and we are just having a blast. And the good times are about to continue because we got ourselves a great guest coming up right now. She is an L.A.-based entertainment industry insider and the CEO of Trivana Tracks, an acclaimed music clearing and licensing firm. Recently, Trivana Tracks announced a partnership with music reporting company Soundmouse to ensure seamless transfer of sync data and cue sheets to help music supervisors and editors get timely payments. You can find out more about our guest's work by visiting www.trivanatracks.com. We are happy to welcome Jennifer Freed on to Break the Business. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lisa. So great to be with you today. Thank you. Great to be chatting with you. Let me begin our interview with a complaint. Because that's that's what I learned like in interview (laughs) school is just like when the guest comes in, don't like soften them up with a softball question. Just start complaining right away. So here we go. As an entertainment lawyer. I can take it. There you go. As an entertainment, well, don't worry. I'm not, it's not a complaint about you, just what you do. (laughs) As an entertainment lawyer, I got to work in in the sync space and, you know, and I work with music supervising, uh, music supervisors, some of the most lovely people I know in entertainment, by the way. I've never met one I haven't liked. Agreed. But sync licensing and music supervision and the whole process behind it is a freaking mess it is chaotic much like the current state of my stomach right now (laughs) after drinking that champagne diet coke beverage in the first segment all right it is a nightmare finding the tracks setting up the licensing figuring out all the weird lingo that they use and you got to talk with the labels and then the publishers and there's always 19 songwriters and you got to get all of them on board and then when then assuming that all that's done then you got to get everybody paid it is a absolute nightmare so i ask you jennifer why is it like this why is this process so broken well i can tell you that actually i'm not a music supervisor i am a software developer who came to develop a platform to manage this process to try to take the chaos out of it if that Helps. You're trying so to save us from this nightmare. Said, I am trying to save you from this nightmare. And I think we've been pretty successful at it. But um, like every great origin story, we hope that, you know, it really does come from true pain points that you've experienced yourself. And my background is in film production and specifically accounting for film and television and specifically post-production accounting, which is where most of the music licensing decisions take place. So it was a perfect vantage point to see after over 20 something years and 800 feature films, the chaos that you described (laughs) and the way that there was no technology solution for 
music supervisors, entertainment lawyers, business affairs, finance, accounting, delivery executives, studio executives to work together in one platform that wasn't kind of a band-aid of other um, softwares or spreadsheets or things that really weren't built exactly for music supervision. So our product was developed because we saw these music supervisors using non-standardized spreadsheets. Some of them, if you can imagine, would have 12 columns that are trying to get all of that data that you're talking about in there in a different manner every single time. Some would have four columns and then you're like, well, I, you're not even giving me the splits. You're not telling me everything that I need. And as post-production accountants, we would be deluged by this. And I decided that we had to do something to fix it. And it wasn't just the data, but again, as a lawyer, you can appreciate it's all the documents that goes with all of the data. So it's very important that not only the tracks that are being considered, but the licenses within that track are tracked in terms of rights holder information, um, statuses, negotiations, and the documents behind them. Well, and we've heard for a long time that this whole process is in need of a software solution, much like many things in the music business that are still using like 19th century methods uh, in the 21st century. But it's a unique challenge in your space because as you noted, that's for the software to work, it's not just doing one thing. It's got to manage documents. It's got to manage, you know, data. It's got to handle payments. There's a lot of different things going on and it has to be able to do all of those things well. And, and you know, from working in the software business, it's hard enough to get software to do one thing, right? And so can you talk about sort of the, the unique scale of the challenge that was ahead for your company and, and how you approached it? There was, you know, I mean, the fact is really, I'm a film lover. So I grew up loving film. Actually, can I just take a second and say, I'm, I'm here in LA today, but I grew up in Miami. What? I used what? to live across the street from the University of Miami. It was the first place we lived. And the, I really went to um, high school. So I lived the rest of you know 10, 10 or 12 years down in what's now called Pinecrest, down ah. off of Old oh. Color. Fancy, and fancy. I went to Miami Palmetto High School. I'm a Palmetto Panther. Hey. Oh, oh, Along, see, now, well, now now, we have a problem. Well, we're going to have to go. Because Elisa okay. and I yeah. went to Killian. Oh, which, uh, that is a for, real problem. That is a real yes. problem for the, for the that uninitiated. That is a real problem. We're, we're rivals, Jennifer Freed. Mm-hmm. This so, isn't like you could have said any other high school in Miami and we would have been like, that's so no. cool, fellow <laughs> Miami buddy. But now we're like blood enemies. No. Killian and Palmetto, my God. It's like Friday Night Lights all over again, right? Oh, jeez, um, like Jets and Shark stuff. And, and you know what the worst thing was? Killian. Yep. You know what the worst thing was, Elisa, is that Jennifer was like, oh my, like she was thinking to herself, I have a connection point between Ryan and Elisa. Before we get any further in this interview, I got to tell these two that I grew up in Miami. They're going to think that's so amazing. We're going to be best friends. And you were almost right. You were so close to being right. Except you went to the one high school in Miami-Dade County. That has created a huge rift between us. If if there's anything the show can do, though. It's build bridges. We can build mm-hmm. bridges. That's right. That's what we're doing. All right. Now we have our real task in front of us, which is to build a bridge of that. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But, uh, but great no, to know you're in Miami. That is very, there. very cool. Yeah, we love that. No, I love to grow up. I love growing up there. Um, but then I went to Stanford and I was a film major and I came to LA and um, started working I, my first job was in craft service, so I brought bagels and blueberry muffins to the you know job. The at six most o'clock important in the job on any film set. <laughs> Don't let crap. anyone tell you different. <laughs> it is so first man in, last man out. But I started noticing that I really loved the kind of the business aspect of a creative industry. So I was kind of attracted to being with the accountant, with the line producer, with the UPM. And that just led me into production accounting. So it's an odd field. I think a lot of people don't know about it. So if your listeners are thinking about 
film production, you usually think about cameramen or wardrobe designers or production designers, but really the accountants are there to budget, estimate, and pay everything all along the way. So I did principal photography for about 10 years, and then I moved to New York and I moved into post-production. So I had two babies in 18 months, Trevor and Savannah, and then that's how I named my company Travana. So it's their two names mixed Aww. together. Aww. Yes. It's adorable. Um, and um, that, and then we just started doing um, films that posted in New York. And ironically, the very first film that I worked on was called Money Train. I don't know if any of you guys wow. saw it or remember it back in 95, but it was one of J-Lo's first is, movies. Is, is that like, because there were, there were a lot of movies in that year that I think had the word Two money trains. in it. <laughs> is Money Train, is that like the Adam Sandler one? Or was that like no, a different it was, one? Um, Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes. It was kind of yeah, that white yeah. men can't jump. Next one. And J-Lo was in it. And so... Yeah. You know, it was like, yes, I'm another Jenny on the block. It was really fun. But this is the part of the story that makes sense, right? In filmmaking, there's a lot of things that are dictated by schedule. And then there's things that are dictated by appetite. So it's how many days are you shooting? How many weeks are you editing? How much are you paying the cast? How much are you paying the director? But there's other types of spend called appetite spend, which is totally a creative choice. How much are you going to spend on visual effects? How much are, are you going to make bespoke costumes or are you going to buy them from the gap? You know, mm -hmm. choices like that. And music licensing is that, is that appetite spend that is the last one to be spent. So a lot of times, um, the final decisions on what songs are going to be used in a project aren't even decided until the final mix. But the music supervisor has to read the script, see that there's 20 scenes in it, come up with options for the creative team on all of those scenes, because you can't just say, here's 20 songs you're going to use. So they have to pick three to six or seven options for each of those scenes. Each of them have to be all of those things Ryan referred to, right? They have to be researched, negotiated, and then you have to wait and see which one the director is going to pick. And then they have to be confirmed. Then it goes to licensing and then it goes to payment for every track. And then however many licenses are within that, both for the publishing side and the recording side. So it's an amazing amount of work. And often it comes down to how much money is left in the budget. Honest to God, it really yeah. accounting and music supervising really does go together at that point where you say, can I afford this song or can I or am I going to have to go with this song? Or maybe it's creatively you want to go with the lesser known indie artist because that's a cooler thing than going with a known artist. Um, so all of those different things go into it. It could remind somebody of a bad date that they had and they never want to hear that song again, even though the music supervisor <laughs> thinks it's great or it can be financial or just can't work for the scene. Or maybe it's the song that you need to have for the scene. So that's really how I came to see that there was a need to create a tool that can help the um, everybody collaborate in real time and be able to see all the choices. What are we talking about? This song is going to be $60,000. This song is going to be $5,000. Here's all, all of the choices. And then which ones are we going to go with? And so effectively, that was our origin story. And um, that is the crazy way that I decided to get into the software business. And definitely providing a problem that is in dire need of a solution to you know kind of put all of those things in one house so that these things can get, I, I'm telling you not, no kidding, not <laughs> three or four hours ago, Jennifer, I got a, you know, one of my clients got a, uh, you know, a, 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 a sync license that they had to sign. And this thing had to be printed out, hand signed and scanned back in. They didn't even have like an electronic signature, anything. I mean, no docu sign. And like my client tried to like, Oh, can I just like, you know, 
Can I just put my Adobe signature in it? They're like, no, it has to be printed. And, and like, you know, nobody has scanners anymore. It was a nightmare. Um, and, and so like, yes, th- we need you to fix this. So happy that you're on it. <laughs> By the way, for those who are curious, here's the movie mistake I made. I mistook Money Train with the similarly titled Money Talks that came around the same time starring Chris Tucker and also confused um, it with the Buddy Cop 1996 movie Bulletproof, which starred Adam Sandler. So just wanted to let everybody know where my ridiculous head wow. was. Yeah, but again, all these things came out. Of, like, this is this <laughs> like, reminds me of Lisa. Like, remember, like, around the same time, like, 95, 96, where we just had a bunch of monkey movies back to back. It was Dunstan checks in. It was oh. Ed. It was monkey trouble. Like Hollywood was obsessed mm-hmm. with monkey movies for kids for like an 18 month stretch. And like, no, and everybody mixes up which one is which. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> back to more important matters. That's okay. Of, That's okay. Of a stream. I want to talk about your, you know, we talked a little bit about where your line of work is going, like where music supervision and the software solutions, where all of that is came from. Now I want to talk about like where it's going and like the new developments that we're seeing. All right. It's no secret that the boom in streaming has definitely changed the whole, this whole world. It's, it's definitely changed the day-to-day of music supervisors, all these new platforms that are coming in and are, and are just, you know, changing things on a daily basis. Can you talk a little bit about the effects of the streaming boom on music supervisors? Sure. Well, the music supervisors are our users, you know, and so we love them and care for them and want them to be happy. Our clients are the streamers and studios that mm. are the enterprise people. So the music supervisors don't pay to use Travana tracks, but it's obviously a great benefit to them because it makes their job easier. The effect that the streaming boom has had is that they have just had to work on too many projects and the projects go on forever. So typically um, a music supervisor is hired as for a project as a flat fee, if as a feature film or however many episodes it is, but it can really drag on for a really long time. And if you're working on a lot of different projects, that means that you're going to be not only pivoting between each project all of the time, but they're going to be in different stages. Some are going to be early. Some are going to be in the middle of shoot. They might have on-camera performances that they're having to deal with. Some of them might be 10 weeks into post. Some might post might have extended. It might be week 42 of post. And, and your just memory of where you stand with everything is in jeopardy in a way. So that's another way that Travana can help. But um, so yeah, for, for them, they're mainly overworked and they are, I feel terribly underpaid and they are going through a unionization um, attempt right now, which I fully support. I supported East Coast accountants to get into the IATSE in the 90s. And now there's hundreds and hundreds of accountants in the union that wouldn't have been in there before. So I feel their pain because they are one of the only contributors on a film that are not in a union. So they don't have any representation or health benefits or um, any protection for any of the working conditions that they find themselves in. Oh, as far so as I'm a, concerned. There's a whole thing um, social media um, uh, push for that. You can easily find it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm all for music supervisors having, uh, everything they want and desire. They, they do very important work that is often difficult and thankless. And as you noted quite aptly undercompensated. And I, I mean, that's an interesting perspective that you lended there that I didn't consider that like, we're just making more content now mm-hmm. than we ever have there's more shows than there's ever been there's more movies than there's ever been and so there's more sync projects than there's ever been and Absolutely. if we're still using the same stone age <laughs> method for clearing you know, you know musical compositions and masters and paying the creators that's you know at scale that's not going to work so all the more reason for a software solution um, right. I'm guessing that like with the with the boom in streaming creating more 
sync projects, that must mean that we're seeing a, a, a high or a peak in sync licensing revenue along with that, right? Well, just by the sheer number of projects, times however much, but you'd be surprised at the range of projects. I mean, we see projects that are done for $20,000, no sync licenses if it's a period movie, can be very small budgets under 50,000. And we uh, just paid out one that's, well, we didn't, we saw one in the, in the platform over two and a half million dollars in sync licensing. So it's, it's going to be, I think the, um, Consumers enjoy watching films with a lot of contempt with a lot of music in it. So that's going to push to have more and more music in each project. And then times each project is going to mean more revenue for sure. Um, but it's a lot of clearance work. It's a lot of repetitive research. It's a lot of sending out quote requests. And in the old days, before Travana, of course, um, they would have to copy and paste everything in. You have to, every time, Brian, you get the sync request, right? Every time somebody's interested in a track, they need to tell you what the company is, tell you what the project is, the synopsis of the project, even tell you the synopsis of the scene, tell them the duration that they're intending to use it for, what type is it going to be? Is it a background vocal? Are they going to be singing in a karaoke scene? You know, you in need context, to provide all of, of that information. Yeah, yeah. What kind of rights are you asking for? What territory, what term? All of those things you used to have to hand type that over and over and over and over. And we've simplified that in a way that you can now send out so many of these requests and then the confirmations when you um, decide to use the track for sure without having oh, to do God. any of that. The system generates it. <laughs> and then you oh. as a recipient of them are going to get really like clean, consistent, complete, accurate requests that have everything in it that you need to decide if you're going to approve or deny the request. Oh, I'm in heaven. <laughs> Viewers and listeners, I encourage you to check out uh, TravannaTracks.com, T-R-E-V-A-N-N-A, Tracks.com. I mean, this is just, just like an elixir. I can't, like that's, <laughs> what you're describing sounds amazing to me. I'm thankful for the work that you and your yeah. team did to put this together and for sharing this really cool platform with us. I look forward to learning more about it. Uh, Jennifer, before we let you go, one last question, and I thank you in advance for putting up with our silliness throughout this interview. But No, I uh, love silliness. Well, good. We brought plenty of it today. I think it was the Tom Hanks drink. Uh, one last question. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Oh, my God. Yes, please. Okay. There's nothing more difficult for a music supervisor than when they find a song on YouTube, any source that they, you know, find a random track and they have difficulty tracking down the rights holders. So as an indie creator, please, 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 if you want your song to be used in a sync um, situation, make sure that the licensing information is available. And what does that mean? That there's a lot of things that you can do. You can check all the places where the supervisors are going to be looking and make sure that your tracks are um, have the information. They have the right number of writers. They have where you can contact them, who is the publisher, who's the label. The label is usually easier to find unless you're a yeah. super, super indie artist. Um, but you can, you can self-report through the... Um, MLC. Have you guys talked about that before? Mechanical Licensing Collective. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a self-reporting capability where you can write in if you see that your tracks need to be corrected, but you should look on Spotify, Google your tracks, um, look on ASCAP and BMI's um, new collaborative um, platform called Songview. Uh, that's where also you can type in a song and it will tell you who they say the writers are. Um, make sure you look for foreign, um, PROs as well, like PRS in England, you know, England you, does a lot of English, uh, sync of American songs. So you want to make sure there, and then there's two other places that come to mind that would be disco, 
which is the number one um, playlist software that music supervisors use. And if your writer, writer and publisher information is on there, that saves the supervisor a step. And there's a new platform out of Australia called Jaxta, which is kind of like the IMDB of um, all recordings. It's not only going to tell you the label, the album, the release date, the publisher, the writers, the lyrics. It's going to tell you who played the violin, who was the producer, oh. and oh, it's all yes. clickable. So if you say, well, I want, you know, this violinist from the Duncan Sheik song, what else did they work on? You can click through to that. Ooh. But circling back to your question is check that your information is publicly available. And if it's not, go to the source and make sure that they add it. Great, great advice. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the program this week. You're what a joy. Welcome. Our thanks to go Jennifer. Go Panthers. Oh, oh, God. <laughs> Jennifer. <laughs> no. The oh, insolence. Oh, we were, we, you, you had such a great dismount at the end there. Uh, we're just jealous because it's a better high school than ours. <laughs> <laughs> Palmetto Panthers, they're, um, they're pretty solid. I mean, anyway, uh, our thanks to you, I Jennifer. Wanna, I want to, and I want to thank you for a second if I could because oh, I've known about your podcast for a long time and the title of it is what is so appealing to me because I feel like in my own way, I tried to do that. I tried to break the business, you know, and it's it's a difficult thing. It's uh, difficult to create your own category, you know, to make something new that didn't exist before, to try to get people interested in technology, let alone to invest in it. But um, I hope what I'm hearing from you is that you can appreciate it as a professional in the industry and um, I hope that your listeners um, are curious to find out more. And I love that you're embracing the spirit of this show. That's fantastic. Our thanks to uh, producer Lauren. Uh, thanks always to you, Elisa Rock Doc. And thanks to all the viewers and listeners for checking out Break the Business and hanging out with us tonight. We'll see you next week. <laughs>